I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Waller. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's spooky season still. song that you love so much? Yeah. Yeah. For those of you who um, maybe didn't, couldn't hear so clearly, I don't know how much is going to um, shine through the music that's sort of playing under it, but that was Anything Can Happen on Halloween um, from the 1980 something, or was it late 70s? It was before I was born, and I was born in 82. Classic so. uh, Halloween flick, The Worst Witch. Which I've never seen, but Ken sings this song all the time around Halloween, and I'm like, he's shown me like the video of it, and it is the most 70s, 80s Tim Curry that has ever existed, and it, I'm like, I'm talking it beats Rocky Horror, like, in that energy. So... Um, if you want to watch something ridiculous, and I can't even vouch for it, but Ken says it's the best Halloween movie that's ever been made. I, I don't. I don't think I ever said it was the best <laughs> Halloween movie that's ever been made. Although it's certainly in running for the kitschiest. 1986. Oh shit! I, just I was alive. 1986. Yeah. Well. With uh, Diana Rigg, Tim Curry, and a very youthful Feruza Balk. Probably a very youthful Diana Rigg, too. Very, very <laughs> youthful Diana Rigg. Um, rest, or at least. Yeah, R.I.P. What a badass. Yeah, um, she but is certainly. Fucking badass. Certainly very youthful compared to how we are used to seeing her. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, it is of the Rocky Horror season. I mean, we sang through the Rocky Horse score, like. A couple days, days ago. Two days ago, just like sitting on the couch, like, you did it right before we met. Yeah. Uh, like five years ago, four, four and a half years. It was about five years ago. Five years ago. Is when you would have done rock. A uh, little, little over five years ago because yeah. we actually did it um, completely the wrong time of year. We did it in oh. February. Oh, really? That's yeah. hilarious. Um, um, so I was very cold running around in my little skimpy gold bikini bottoms. I bet you were. It's chilly. I want to put those on the website. <laughs> I want to put a picture of that on the website. So the very first picture I ever saw of Ken. <laughs> this is a fun story. So a little bit about us. We met in grad school, um, and the first, very first picture I saw of Ken was when I was like Facebook stalking my future classmates, and uh, the not that any of you have ever done anything like no, that. Of course not. But that like our our school sent out the like list of eight classmates that are going to be in our graduating our uh, our small MFA class, and uh, <laughs> I googled, and this was obviously well Rocky Horror had just happened. And the first picture I see of him is him only wearing uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, very, very tight um, underwear. Sequined Speedo bottoms. <laughs> and I went, uh-oh. And look at us now. Oh, dear. <laughs> Here we are. Oh, dear. <laughs> many, many years later, still happy and uh, making Still singing Rocky Horror. Still singing oh. Rocky Horror and, uh, and going strong. That might be the last musical I did. Probably. If you didn't do something that summer before you No, I, the, the, not, not a musical, no. Not a musical, no. yeah. I think that might be the last musical I worked on. Damn. I'm trying to go back and think through. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the last musical I worked on was the Rocky Horror Show. Well, hell yeah. Back in February of 2015. Woohoo! 
Well. All right. On that note. You know what? I think we should uh, get get down to business. Jump on in. Let's get to business. Let's break on through to the other side. <laughs> I'm feeling very musical today, apparently. That's that's good. Um, okay, so uh, you learned a little bit about us. Now you're going to learn a little bit about this author. And Ken, you are going to read The Leather Funnel by Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh! Mr. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Excellent. <laughs> so, this uh, is... A story which I believe was recommended by the same, same person, person who recommended last week's story. <laughs> it, it is. She's killing it, because... Her name is all over this list. Yep. So, um, and it, like, she's got, like, the right word count for what we're looking yeah. for. Like, it's right in that golden pocket. And I, this one made, was interesting because, one, it's, like, a horror mystery, like, horror genre, which we're looking for. Um, but also because it is an Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story that has nothing to do with Sherlock Holmes. So, and I have never experienced that. So... Uh, here's some fun facts, speaking of. Uh, I got most of these on Wikipedia and a couple biography pages uh, dedicated to Mr. Sir Doyle. Uh, you know how I love the sirs. <laughs> to Mr. Uh, O'Doyle. Mr. O'Doyle. <laughs> O'Doyle rules! <laughs> uh, Doyle's attitude towards his most famous creation was ambivalent. In November of 1891, he wrote to his mother saying, quote, I think of slaying Holmes and winding him up for good and all. He takes my mind from better things. <laughs> His mother responded, you won't, you can't, you mustn't. <laughs> I won't believe it. I can't believe it. I shan't believe it. Yeah, so that, uh, I love that little exchange to like go off into a story that's not a Holmes um, and this is a fun fact, too, in the fact that in an attempt to deflect publishers' demands for more Holmes stories, he raised the price to a level intended to discourage them, but found that they were just willing to pay that. So he, as a result, he became one of the best-paid authors of all time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you create a character that everyone loves that much. Uh, they're just going to pay for it, Shit's no matter what you do. So... I mean, he didn't love writing the character because he wanted to write other things like what we're going to read, but uh, he sure made a shit ton of money doing it. All right. So boy. he had a fascinating life and like we're probably going to come back to him. And like the first Doyle was only the second time we did Fun Facts, so we only did a couple. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, oh my gosh, where do I even begin? And I think because it's spooky season, I'm going to talk about... His mustache. His mustache. <laughs> And how it would float away in the night and haunt people. Um, now, so Doyle was had a long-standing interest in mystical subjects and remained okay. fascinated by paranormal phenomenon. He was a phenomena. Uh, phenomena. Na, 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 na. So he was a spiritualist and uh, very much believed in like seances and possession and like all these things so it all started in 1887 in South Sea and he went he was a member of the Portsmouth Literary and Philosophical Society Doyle began a series of investigations into possible psychic phenomena and attended about 20 seances experiments in telepathy and sittings with mediums so he was very fascinated by this um, which is funny he was raised Catholic 
um, uh, very Irish Catholic, um, but very early on realized that was not his he, not his jam. He didn't, and his his father and him actually had a huge like kind of falling out over that, huh. um, which I won't go into. But like, so he he found this later in life. And uh, he began writing to the spiritualist journal Light. It's just called Light, like L-I-G-H-T, that year. And declared himself a spiritualist to the world, um, describing one particular event that had convinced him of psychic phenomenon and that it was real. And then during the height of World War I, his beliefs became even more strengthened, and he believed that he took, um, like, all the death and, like, like, trauma in the world was like increasing uh the spiritual energy in the world which i guess would make sense um and he believed he got his psychic abilities from his childhood uh, his children's nanny lily loader simmons um and like this constant wartime thing uh is what he called the new revolution hmm. like that's that all this uh, new uh, spiritual energy in the world uh, was the new revolution sent by God to bring solace to the bereaved. And in 1918, he published his first spiritualist work called The New Revolution. Uh, I I want to read all this, but I'm going to skip a little bit. He wrote a couple. Pu- he re- published quite a few um, like short stories, but then he also wrote another book on spiritualism, The Vital Message, in 1919. Um, I, 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 he was also in the Ghost Club, that like, oh, yeah. that uh, ghost hunting society that's come <laughs> up for many of our writers, which I freaking love. <laughs> it's, I, it's a little writer's circle, but when they don't have new stories to swap, they go out ghost hunting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in 1920... I just got an idea for a new, uh, a new Dungeons & Dragons or, campaign. Ooh, yes. <laughs> uh, in 1920, Doyle traveled to Australia and New Zealand on spiritualist missionary work. And over the next several years until he died, he continued this mission, giving uh, like uh, lectures and spiritualist conviction seminars in Britain, Europe, and the United States. Um, Doyle was friends for a time with the American magician Harry Houdini and even though Houdini explained that his feats were based on illusion and trickery Doyle was convinced that Houdini had supernatural powers (laughs) and said as much in his work The Edge of the Unknown which was a writing that he published that sounds like you I know it's like I absolutely like my my um like logical brain understands that magic is illusion it is like magicians are doing something that is they're just very skilled at it's it's physical and scientific trickery but if you have ever seen me at a magic show or like watch uh like america's got talent like (laughs) close-up magic i lose my shit because i believe magic is real so i feel you arthur conan doyle so like um yeah, he just believed it was real, and this actually led to, like, their falling out because Houdini became a prominent opponent to the spiritualist movement in the 20s um, after the death of his mother, 
And he insisted that spiritualistic mediums employed trickery and consistently exposed them as frauds because he knew how they were doing it. And so this caused Doyle, who was a very avid spiritualist, to basically say, fuck you, Houdini. So they no longer were friends. <laughs> so so uh, there you go. That's uh, that's what that is. Uh, that is. So uh, with that, um, I think we're going to... Get get to business. Get to business. Yeah, I have so much more that I like skipped over, and uh, but like we're we're gonna do more Doyle. And yeah. if you're interested, I found most of this. I said on the Wikipedia page or a couple, uh, and then following like links biography from there. pages um, that where they got it. So if you're interested in more about his fascinating life, check it out. All right. But for now, you're going to be reading the Leather Funnel. All right, let's get this fire let's started. Start the fire. Spooky season fire. The Leather Funnel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. My friend, Lionel Dacker, lived in the Avenue de Wagram, Paris. His house was that small one with the iron railings and grass plot in front of it on the left-hand side as you pass down from the Arc de Triomphe. Oh, what a terrible address. Yeah. Oh. But it was small. Oh, that one. The small one. Oh, this, but the tiny little flat that had green space in the middle <laughs> of the frickin' city. <laughs> I fancy that it had been there long before the avenue was constructed, for the gray tiles were stained with lichens. Lichens again! <laughs> Wasn't that, was that our last? Was that the last? Yeah, that was yeah, the that voice was in the dark. The... the gray lichens that were eating everything. Oh my god, why? I, I I hope these aren't the same lichens. Uh-oh, here we go. I guess, whoops. <laughs> Didn't realize we were being so thematically consistent. Well, here we go. It's it's the lichen lessons of the world. <clears throat> here we go. I don't know what that meant. I'm drunk. <laughs> All right, let's try this again. Yep. My friend, Lionel Dacker, lived in the Avenue de Wagram, Paris. His house was that small one with the iron railings and the grass plot in front of it on the left-hand side as you pass down from the Arc de Triomphe. I fancy that it had been there long before the avenue was constructed, for the gray tiles were stained with lichens and the walls were mildewed and discolored with age. It looked a small house from the street, five windows in front, if I remember right, but it deepened into a single long chamber at the back. It was here that Dacker had that singular library of occult literature and the fantastic curiosities which served as a hobby for himself and an amusement for his friends. A wealthy man of refined and eccentric tastes, he had spent much of his life and fortune in gathering together what was said to be a unique private collection of Talmudic, Kabbalistic, and magical works. What? Many of them of great rarity and value. What was the first word? Tal- Talmudic. What does that mean? Um, like, ta- like the Talmud? Referring, like- referring to the Talmud? Yeah, like like Jewish traditions. I assume. I would assume, but would you like me to look I, it up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ta- Talmudic, referring to the the religious text. Okay. Interesting. So his friend is um, into the freaky. Is in into the the um, 
the religious, mystical, and magical. So, so he's a spiritualist. He's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yep. Okay, cool. His tastes leaned toward the marvelous and the monstrous, and I have heard that his experiments in the direction of the unknown have passed all the bounds of civilization and of decorum. To his English friends, he never alluded to such matters and took the tone of the student and virtuoso, but... A Frenchman whose tastes were of the same nature has assured me that the worst excesses of the black mass have been perpetrated in that large and lofty hall which is lined with the shelves of his books and the cases of his museum. Oh, damn, he doing some black magic in there? Yep. Oh, okay. Wait, so he tells the British people, like, it's all cool, it's a library, and this French guy's like, "Mm mm-mm. There's nope. some shit going down in Fucking there. Fucking weird. He's like, that British man, we don't like him. <laughs> Dacker's appearance was enough to show that his deep interest in these psychic matters was intellectual rather than spiritual. There was no trace of uh, asceticism. Asceticism. There's a word. Asceticism. Noun, severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Oh, okay, so it's like uh, fasting or like not having sex before marriage. <laughs> That's an asceticism. All right. Wow. There was no trace of asceticism upon his heavy face, but there was much mental force in his huge dome-like skull, which curved upward from amongst his thinning locks like a snow peak above its fringe of fir trees. Wow. His knowledge was greater than his wisdom, and his powers were far superior to his character. The small, bright eyes buried deep in his fleshy face twinkled with intelligence and an unabated curiosity of life, but they were the eyes of a sensualist and an egotist. (laughs) Wow, it's a good thing this guy doesn't have an opinion about it. (laughs) Enough of the man. For he is dead now, poor devil, dead at the very time that he had made sure that he had at last discovered the elixir of life. Wait, whoa. It is not with his complex character that I have to deal, but with the very strange and inexplicable incident which had its rise in my visit to him in the early spring of the year 82. Oh, 82. It was a good year. I mean, that was the year I was born, 100 years later. 100 years later. (laughs) I had known Dacker in England for my researches in the Assyrian room of the British Museum had been conducted at the time when he was endeavoring to establish a mystic and esoteric meaning in the Babylonian tablets, and this community of interests had brought us together. Chance remarks had led to daily conversation and that to something verging upon friendship. I had promised him that on my next visit to Paris I would call upon him. At the time when I was able to fulfill my compact, I was living in a cottage at Fontainebleau. Fontainebleau? Fontainebleau. It's a place in France. Okay, I'm going to call it Fontainebleau. Like Fountainebleau. Let's call it Fountainebleau. Well, Fontainebleau is Fountain Blue. 
Fontainebleau. 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 If I want to pronounce it correctly, Fontainebleau. But I'm not I'm not that American, so it's Fontainebleau. <laughs> I think I'm not that American, <laughs> so it's Fontainebleau. You actually know how to say it. <laughs> um, Sorry, France. And as the evening trains were inconvenient, he asked me to spend the night in his house. I have... Only that one spare couch, he said, pointing to a broad sofa in his large salon. I hope that you will manage to be comfortable there. It was a singular bedroom with its high walls of brown volumes, but there could be no more agreeable furniture to a bookworm like myself and there is no scent so pleasant to my nostrils as that faint, subtle reek which comes from an ancient book. Oh, that's like, he just had a bell orgasm. <laughs> he's like, he's like, look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? But instead of like under the sea, it's Belle singing about how much she loves books. <laughs> I do love the smell of old books, though. That's the one thing I do miss about like technology. Like technology came in and you don't go to the library as much anymore and get the like the library smell like those books have a very very distinct smell yeah case in point reading this off a of kindle yep but and that oh that would be a great yankee candle <laughs> <laughs> like, old library book. old book oh, by yankee candle mildew book hey yankee candle if you're listening and i know you are and want to sponsor us and want Got a scent idea for you. Check it out. Trademark. Although we should be really careful about book scented candles. <laughs> no, I we feel don't like burning book I candles. feel like fire and books don't have a great history. No, they, like, they, don't, they don't want to smell like burning books. <laughs> you know what I meant. <laughs> It was a singular room with its high walls of brown volumes, but there could be no more agreeable furniture to a bookworm like myself, and there is no scent so pleasant to my nostrils as that faint, subtle reek which comes from an ancient book. I assured him that I could desire no more charming chamber and no more congenial surroundings. If the fittings are neither convenient nor conventional, they are at least costly, he said, looking around <laughs> at his shelves. I have expended nearly a quarter of a million of money upon these objects which surround you. Books, weapons, gems, carvings, tapestries, images. There is hardly a thing here which has not had its history. And it is generally one worth telling. Okay, first of all, what does this guy do? Because, <laughs> like, this is a hundred and uh, almost 40 years ago. Yeah. Millions of dollars. Quarter of a million. Okay, but that's just the stuff. That doesn't include the house and his travels and, like, and also a lot of money. Well, potentially. Unless I will say... It. I will say that he just said, I have expended nearly a quarter of a million of money. <laughs> Doesn't say what kind of money. We have no idea what the currency is. It's, uh, he, he does favors for people. Um, Maybe he's a prostitute for weird things. <laughs> I have expended nearly a quarter of a million shillings. It's <laughs> very true. different than a quarter of a million 
pounds. That's or a quarter of a million francs. Uh, francs. Francs. I said francs. <laughs> I have spent nearly a quarter of a million frogs. <laughs> Which well, is the accepted currency of which is around the world in the southern parts of Louisiana. <laughs> Damn, those frog legs are good. Those mm-hmm. are worth a lot. <laughs> he was seated as he spoke at one side of an open fireplace and I at the other. His reading table was on his right and the strong lamp above it ringed it with a very vivid circle of golden light. A half-rolled Palimpsest. Ooh. Palimpsest? Is a noun. A manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writings, but with traces that remain. Oh. Something reused or altered, but still bearing a visible trace from its earlier source. In textual studies, a palimpsest is a manuscript page, either from a scroll or a book, from which the text has been scraped or washed off so the page can be reused for another document. Oh, shit, that's weird. All that effort to make the paper reusable. A half-rolled palimpsest lay in the center, and around it were many quaint articles of bric-a-brac. One of these was a large funnel, such as is used for filling wine casks. It appeared to be made it appeared to be made of black wood and to be rimmed with discolored brass. That's a curious thing, I remarked. What is the history of that? Ah, said he. It is the very question which I have had occasion to ask myself. I would give a good deal to know. Take it in your hands and examine it. I did so, and found that what I imagined to be wood was in reality leather, though age had dried it into an extreme hardness. It was a large funnel, and might hold a quart when full. The brass rim encircled the wide end, but the narrow end was also tipped with metal. "'What do you make of it?' asked Dacker. "'I should imagine that it belonged to some vintner or maltster in the Middle Ages,' said I. "'I have seen in England leathern drinking flagons of the 17th century, blackjacks as they were called, which were of the same color and hardness of this filler. "'I dare say the date would be about the same,' said Dacker, "'and no doubt also it was used for filling a vessel with liquid. "'If my suspicions are correct, however, "'it was a queer vintner who used it, "'and a very singular cask which was filled. "'Do you observe nothing strange at the spout end of the funnel?' As I held it to the light, I observed that at a spot some five inches above the brass tip, the narrow neck of the leather funnel was all haggled and scored, as if someone had notched it round with a blunt knife. Only at that point was there any roughening of the dead black surface. Someone has tried to cut off the neck. Would you call it a cut? 
Oh, is it scratches? It is torn and lacerated. It must have taken some strength to leave these marks on such tough material, whatever the instrument may have been. But what do you think of it? I can tell that you know more than you say. (laughs) You ain't so clever, buddy. (laughs) Dacker smiled, and his little eyes twinkled with knowledge. Have you included the psychology of dreams among your learned studies? He asked. I did not even know that there was such a psychology. My dear sir, that shelf above the gem case is filled with volumes from Albertus Magnus onward, which deal with no other subject. It is a science in itself. A science of charlatans. (laughs) The charlatan is always the pioneer. From the astrologer came the astronomer, from the alchemist, the chemist, from the mesmerist, the experimental psychologist. The quack of yesterday is the professor of tomorrow. Oh, damn! I like that. (laughs) Even such subtle and elusive things as dreams will in time be reduced to system and order. When that time comes, the researches of our friends on the bookshelf yonder will no longer be the amusement of the mystic, but the foundations of a science. Supposing that is so, what has the science of dreams to do with a large, black, brass-rimmed funnel? Good question. I will tell you. You know that I have an agent who is always on the lookout for rarities and curiosities for my collection. Some days ago, he heard of a dealer upon one of the quays who had acquired some old rubbish found in a cupboard in an ancient house at the back of Rue Mathurine in the Quartier Latin. I'm so glad you're reading this. The dining room of this old house is decorated with a coat of arms, chevrons, and bars rouge upon the field argent, which prove, upon inquiry, to be the shield of Nicolas de la Reynie, a high official of King Louis Fourteenth. There can be no doubt that the other articles in the cupboard date back to the early days of that king. The inference is, therefore, that they were all the property of this Nicolas de la Reynie, who was, as I understand, the gentleman specially concerned with the maintenance and execution of the draconian laws of that epoch. (laughs) What? What then? I would ask you now to take the funnel into your hands once more and to examine the upper brass rim. Can you make out any lettering upon it? There were certainly some scratches upon it, almost obliterated by time. The general effect was of several letters, the last of which bore some resemblance to a B. You make it a B? Yes, I do. So do I, in fact. I have no doubt whatever that it is a B. 
But the nobleman you mentioned would have had R for his initial. Exactly. That's the beauty of it. He owned this curious object, and yet he had someone else's initials upon it. Why did he do this? I can't imagine. Can you? Well, I might perhaps guess. Do you observe something drawn a little farther along the rim? I would say it was a crown. It is undoubtedly a crown. But if you examine in a good light, you will convince yourself that it is not an ordinary crown. It is a heraldic crown, a badge of rank, and it consists of an alternation of four pearls and strawberry leaves, the proper badge of a marquee. We may infer, therefore, that the person whose initials end in B was entitled to wear that coronet. Okay, so this guy's just the spiritualist Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and the narrator is yeah. the naive, yeah, like... Yeah. This, is, right? this is super Sherlock and Watson. It's so funny that he hates Sherlock, but, like, even when he's like, I'm not going to write about that. He's writing characters yep. that are doing... The, the same thing. Same thing. This could easily be a Sherlock and Watson conversation. Yeah, you just take out all the woo-woo and you put in, like, math numbers yeah. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm excited to see where this goes. Then... This common leather filler belonged to a marquee? Dacker gave a peculiar smile. Or to some member of the family of a marquee, he said. So much we have clearly gathered from this engraved rim. But what has all this to do with dreams? <laughs> I do not know whether it was from the look upon Dacker's face or from some subtle suggestion in his manner, but a feeling of repulsion or unreasoning horror came upon me as I looked at the gnarled old lump of leather. I have more than once received important information through my dreams, said my companion in the didactic manner which he loved to affect. I make it a rule now, when I am in doubt upon any material point, to place the article in question beside me as I sleep and to hope for some enlightenment. The process does not appear to me to be very obscure, though it has not yet received the blessing of orthodox science. According to my theory, any object which has been intimately associated with any supreme paroxysm of human emotion, whether it be joy or pain, will retain a certain atmosphere or association which is capable of communicating to a sensitive mind. By a sensitive mind, I do not mean an abnormal one, but such a trained and educated mind as you or I possess. You mean, for example, that if I slept beside that old sword upon the wall, I might dream of some bloody incident in which that very sword took part? An 
excellent example for, as a matter of fact, that sword was used in that fashion by me, and I saw in my sleep the death of its owner, who perished in a brisk skirmish, which I have been unable to identify, but which occurred at the time of the wars of the Frondists. If you think of it, some of our popular observances show that the fact has already been recognized by our ancestors, although we, in our wisdom, have classed it among superstitions. Uh, yeah, um, things carry the spirits of, like, the things that, like, especially bad things happened. Like, that is a very, like, common, like, idea. Well, that's the theory behind hauntings. This is a theory behind how that, you get haunted is that you bring if, something in that has a spirit attached to it. That's how, like, haunted dolls happen. Like, that's the idea of a time, like, haunted dolls. Or, like, go, go to an, don't buy things from antique stores because you don't know what was what energy was attached to that item. Or do because you don't know what energy might be attached to that item. And that's what people like me do sometimes. <laughs> We're like, ooh, this looks creepy. Okay, so... Everything in the house has a story, and he's learning about them through his sleep. We, in our wisdom, have classed it among superstitions. For example, well, the placing of the bride's cake beneath the pillow in order that the sleeper may have pleasant dreams. That is one of several instances which you will find set forth in a small brochure which I am myself writing upon the subject. But, to come back to the point, I slept one night with this funnel beside me, and I had a dream which certainly throws a curious light upon its use and origin. What did you dream? I dreamed. He paused, and an intent look of interest came over his massive face. By Jove, that's well thought of, he said. This really will be an exceedingly interesting experiment. You are yourself a psychic object with nerves which respond readily to any impression. I've never tested myself in that direction, then we shall test you tonight. Uh Might I ask you as a very great favor when you occupy that couch tonight to sleep with this old funnel placed by the side of your pillow? The request seemed to me a grotesque one, but I have myself in my complex nature a hunger after all which is bizarre and fantastic. Okay, so he's already sleeping in a room full of, like, haunted old, like, objects, and now he's gonna sleep with one of the haunted old old objects by his head. It's gonna be a great night's sleep. I'd be like, um, I'm gonna go get a hotel, thanks. I'll meet you for breakfast. I had not the faintest belief in Dacker's theory, nor any hopes for success in such an experiment, yet it amused me that the experiment should be made. Dacker, with great gravity, drew a small stand to the head of my settee and placed the funnel upon it. Then, after a short conversation, he wished me good night and left me. 
I sat for some little time smoking by the smoldering fire and turning over in my mind the curious incident which had occurred and the strange experience which might lie before me. Skeptical as I was, there was something impressive in the assurance of Dacker's manner and my extraordinary surroundings, the huge room with the strange and often sinister objects which were hung around it, struck solemnity into my soul. Finally, I undressed, and turning out yeah. the lamp, I lay this down. Oh, it's not a funnel. Yeah, it's like a butt plug. Oh, see, I was going to go with penis sheath. <laughs> it's like the original condom. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if there's like a hole casting. on both sides, it's not going to be terribly that's, useful that's as a true. condom. That is, it's just a nice uh, penis glove. But but as a penis holster. Oh, maybe it's a penis holster like when you get cold. <laughs> it's like muff. It's like a penis muff. <laughs> it's a pocket form of penis. <laughs> Or possibly a uh, uh, a dildo holster (laughs) for people who need a penis but don't have one attached. Oh, so it's like a strap-on. Yeah. Okay. It's like the the holster that that wraps and then... In a... Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right. Ancient sex toys. Well, I mean, not that ancient. If they're saying 17th century, it's like 200 years old for them. That's true. Not like prehistoric strap-on. But I'm sure those exist. Which would be made of stone and wood. And, and dinosaur. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now that where we got was that out I? of our system. <laughs> where was I? I was discussing sex toys. Sex toys and strap-ons. Yeah. Uh, finally, I undressed, and turning out the lamp, I lay down. After long tossing, I fell asleep. Let me try to describe as accurately as I can the scene which came to me in my dreams. It stands out now in my memory more clearly than anything which I have seen with my waking eyes. There was a room which bore the appearance of a vault. Four spandrels from the corners ran up to join a sharp cup-shaped roof. The architecture was rough, but very strong. It was evidently part of a great building. Three men in black with curious, top-heavy black velvet hats sat in a line upon a red-carpeted dais. Their faces were very solemn and sad. On the left stood two long-gowned men with portfolios in their hands, which seemed to be stuffed with papers. Upon the right, looking toward me, was a small woman with blonde hair and singular light blue eyes, the eyes of a child. She was past her first youth, but could not yet be called middle-aged. Her figure was inclined to stoutness, and her bearing was proud and confident. Her face was pale, but serene. It was a curious face, comely, and yet 
Feline. What? What? Sexy cat. It was comely? Sexy cat face. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase. Comely? Comely. Adjective. Archaic. Humorous. So it was a funny face. Typically of a woman. Pleasant to look at. Attractive. Would you say I have a comely face? Rare. <laughs> That's what I'm going to put on my resume now. I'm going to put that on Actors Access. Be like, um... Special skills. Special skills. Comely face. Comely. (laughs) What? Similar words. Attractive, good-looking, nice-looking, beautiful, pretty, handsome, agreeable, suitable. Um, hashtag comely needs to come... I think we need to start using the word comely again. That's a funny... That's a fantastic new word for hot. (laughs) Yeah. I have certainly heard it used... People say, like, oh, she's a comely wench, and it, it means... Like, you've actually heard somebody say that, or it's in, like, reading? Like, no, books. like, like, um, Renfairs. <laughs> okay. And, uh, um... I was like, is this how you talk to your friends? <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's, that's me and, me and my, uh, my Dungeons and Dragons crew, we just use really archaic language all the time. She is a comely wench. <laughs> um, that actually, before we met, was one of my favorite pickup lines. You're a comely wench? Yeah, yeah, I just walk up to women at the bar. Hey, you're a comely wench. Let me buy you a drink. So that's why you were available. Because <laughs> <laughs> some women really like to be called comely wenches. Yep. Especially for role-playing purposes. Led to costumes and props. <laughs> and treasure. Never a funnel-shaped leather dildo holder, though. That's too bad. Yeah. Well, you know, you're young still. <laughs> There's still time. There's still time. Although we'll see. We'll see where this story goes. Yeah, I'm very intrigued. It's not going to be want pretty. that. All right. We'll see how much of that I keep in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where was I? Comely. Her figure was inclined to stoutness, and her bearing was proud and confident. Her face was pale, but serene. It was a curious face comely and yet feline with a subtle suggestion of cruelty about the straight strong little mouth and chubby jaw she was draped in some sort of loose white gown beside her stood a thin eager priest who whispered in her ear and continually raised a crucifix before her eyes she turned her head and looked fixedly past the crucifix at the three men in black who were i felt her judges as i gazed the three men stood up and said something but i could distinguish no words though i was aware that it was the central one who was speaking they then swept out of the room followed by the two men with the papers at the same instant several rough-looking fellows in stout jerkins came bustling in and removed first the red carpet and then the boards which formed the dais so as to entirely clear the room. Uh-oh, she, go about, she about to get exercised. I don't like where this is going. When this screen was removed, I saw some singular articles of furniture behind it. One looked like a bed with wooden rollers at each end and a winch handle to regulate its length. The other was a wooden horse. 
there were several other curious objects and a number of swinging cords which played over pulleys. It was not unlike a modern gymnasium. See, she's about to get exercised. <laughs> or, a, or a workout. That's, I mean... Oh, exercised. <laughs> I didn't know I was oh, going to talk about a gymnasium. <laughs> fuck, I missed the pun. You missed the pun? <laughs> Failure. I, you know, demon exorcism, exercise. Exercise, exercise, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I got there. <laughs> just took me a second damn it damn i rarely am quicker than ken in anything <laughs> other than swimming but like, <laughs> she gonna get exercised i quit <laughs> don't quit i want to know the end of the story never smash <laughs> when the room had been cleared there appeared a new figure upon the scene this was a tall, thin person, clad in black, with a gaunt and austere face. The aspect of the man made me shudder. His clothes were all shining with grease and mottled with stains. He bore himself with a slow and impressive dignity, as if he took command of all things from the instant of his entrance. In spite of his rude appearance and sordid dress, it was now his business, his room, his to command. He carried a coil of light ropes over his left forearm. The lady looked him up and down with a searching glance, but her expression was unchanged. It was confident, even defiant, but it was very different with the priest. His face was ghastly white, and I saw the moisture glisten and run on his high, sloping forehead. He threw up his hands in prayer, and he stooped continually to mutter frantic words in the lady's ear. The man in black now advanced, and taking one of the cords from his left arm, he bound the woman's hands together. She held them meekly toward him as he did so. Oh. Then he took her arm with a rough grip and led her toward the wooden horse, which was a little higher than her waist. Onto this she was lifted and laid with her back upon it and her face to the ceiling, while the priest, quivering with horror, had rushed out of the room. The women's lips were moving rapidly, and though I could hear nothing, I knew that she was praying. Her feet hung down on either side of the horse, and I saw that the rough varlets in attendance had fastened cords to her ankles and secured the other ends to iron rings in the stone floor. Oh my god! My heart sank within me as I saw these ominous preparations, and yet I was held by the fascination of horror, and I could not take my eyes from the strange spectacle. A man had entered the room with a bucket of water in either hand. Another followed with a third bucket. They were laid beside the wooden horse. The second I, I, I'm assuming by wooden horse we mean like a gymnastics horse, not like a like a wooden No, like, like a rocking pony. horse. A, a wooden She's rocking not horse. On a... <laughs> She's on a hobby horse. <laughs> like let's play. Daddy, I won't play. No, horse, like, yeah, like, you like use a, them for... Yeah, it's like a gymnastics horse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 
but without the pommels. Yeah, exactly. Because those would hurt if you were laying on them. Without mm. the fun, yeah. Although I imagine they're not terribly concerned with her comfort. I don't think her comfort is being considered at this moment. Yeah. The second man had a wooden dipper, a bowl with a straight handle in his other hand. This he gave to the man in black. At the same moment, one of the varlets approached with a dark object in his hand, which even in my dream filled me with a vague feeling of familiarity. Ooh. It was a leather filler. They're going to put it in her mouth. With horrible energy, he thrust it, but I could stand no more. My hair stood on end with horror. I writhed, I struggled, I broke through the bonds of sleep, and I burst with a shriek into my own life, and found myself lying shivering with terror in the huge library, with the moonlight flooding through the window and throwing strange silver and black traceries upon the opposite wall. Oh, what a blessed relief to feel that I was back in the 19th century, back out of that medieval vault, into a world where men had human hearts within their bosoms. I sat up on my couch, trembling in every limb, my mind divided between thankfulness and horror. To think that such things were ever done, that they could be done without God striking the villains dead. Wait, where did he thrust the funnel? They never said. They did not. Okay. Was it all a fantasy, or did it really stand for something which had happened in the black, cruel days of the world's history? I sank my throbbing head upon my shaking hands, and then, suddenly, my heart seemed to stand still in my bosom, and I could not even scream, so great was my terror. Something was advancing toward me through the darkness of the room. It was a horror coming upon a horror which breaks a man's spirit. I could not reason, I could not pray, I could only sit like a frozen image and glare at the dark figure which was coming down the great room, and then it moved out into the white lane of moonlight, and I breathed once more. It was Dacker. Oh my god. <laughs> and his face showed that he was as frightened as myself. Was that you? For God's sake, what's the matter? He oh, asked screaming. in a husky voice. Oh, Dacker, I am glad to see you. I have been down into hell. It was dreadful. Then it was you who screamed. I dare say it was. It rang through the house. The servants are all terrified. <laughs> he struck a match and lit a lamp. I think we may get the fire to burn up again, he added, throwing some logs onto the embers. Good God, my dear chap, how white you are. You look as if you had seen a ghost. And so I have. Several ghosts. <sighs> the leather funnel has acted, then. I wouldn't sleep near the infernal thing again for all the money you could offer me. Dacker chuckled. I expected that you would have a lively night of it, said he. You took it out of me in return, for that scream of yours wasn't a very pleasant sound at two in the morning. I suppose, from what you say, that you have seen the whole dreadful business. What dreadful business? 
the torture of the water, the extraordinary question, as it was called in the genial days of Le Roy Soleil. Did you stand it out to the end? No, thank God, I awoke before it really began. Wait, did they... They were going to waterboard her, basically? Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Aha. Uh-huh. It is just as well for you. I held out to the third bucket. Well, it is an old story, and they are all in their graves now. Anyhow, so what does it matter how they got there? I suppose that you have no idea what it was you have seen. The torture of some criminal. She must have been a terrible malefactor indeed if her crimes were in proportion to her penalty. Well, we have that small consolation, said Dacker, wrapping his dressing gown round him and crouching closer to the fire. They were in proportion to her penalty. That is to say, if I am correct in the lady's identity. Oh, shit. How could you possibly know her identity. For answer, Dacker took down an old vellum-covered volume from the shelf. Just listen to this, he said. It is in the French of the 17th century, but I will give a rough translation as I go. You will judge for yourself whether I have solved the riddle or not. The prisoner was brought before the grand chambers and tournals of parliament, sitting as a court of justice charged with the murder of Master Drew Dobre, her father, and of her two brothers, Masters Dobre, one being a civil lieutenant and the other a councillor of parliament. In person, it seemed hard to believe that she had really done such wicked deeds, for she was of a mild appearance and of short stature with fair skin and blue eyes. Yet the court, having found her guilty, condemned her to the ordinary and the extraordinary question, in order that she might be forced to name her accomplices, after which she should be carried in a cart to the Plache de Greve, there to have her head cut off, her body being afterwards burned and her ashes scattered to the winds. The date of this entry is July 16th, 1676. It is interesting, said I, but not convincing, How do you prove the two women to be the same? I am coming to that. The narrative goes on to tell of the woman's behavior when questioned. When the executioner approached her, she recognized him by the cords which he held in his hands, and she at once held her own hands to him, looking at him from head to foot without uttering a word. How's that? Yes, it was so. She gazed without wincing upon the wooden horse and rings which had twisted so many limbs and caused so many shrieks of agony. When her eyes fell upon the three pails of water which were all ready for her, she said with a smile, 
all that water must have been brought here for the purpose of drowning me, monsieur. You have no idea, I trust, of making a person of my small stature to swallow it all. Oh. Shall I read the details of the torture? No, no for heaven's God. sake, don't. Here is a sentence which must surely show you that what is here recorded is the very scene which you have gazed upon tonight. The good Abbe Pirot, unable to contemplate the agonies which were suffered by his penitent, had hurried from the room. Does that convince you? It does, entirely. There can be no question that it is indeed the same event, but who, then, is this lady whose appearance was so attractive and whose end was so horrible? Yeah, pretty, pretty women can't commit crimes. That's, that's like uh, how Jeffrey Dahmer got away with shit. <laughs> For answer, Dacker came across to me and placed the small lamp upon the table which stood by my bed. Lifting up the ill-omened filler... He turned the brass rim so that the light fell full upon it. Seen in this way, the engraving seemed clearer than on the night before. We have already agreed that this is the badge of a marquis or of a marquise, said he. We have also settled that the last letter is B. It is undoubtedly so. I now suggest to you that the other letters from left to right are M, M, a small d, A, a small d, and then the final B. Yes, I'm sure that you are right. I can make out the two small d's quite plainly. What I have read to you tonight, said Dacker, is the official record of the trial of Marie Madeleine d'Aubray, Marquise de Brinvilliers, one of the most famous poisoners and murderers of all time. Oh, shit! I sat in silence, overwhelmed at the extraordinary nature of the incident and at the completeness of the proof with which Dacker had exposed its real meaning. In a vague way, I remembered some details of the woman's career, her unbridled debauchery, the cold-blooded and protracted torture of her sick father, the murder of her brothers for motives of petty gain. I recollected also that the bravery of her end had done something to atone for the horror of her life, and that all Paris had sympathized with her last moments— and blessed her as a martyr within a few days of the time when they had cursed her as a murderess. One objection, and only one, occurred to my mind. How came her initials and her badge of rank upon the filler? Surely they did not carry their medieval homage to the nobility to the point of decorating instruments of torture with their titles. I was puzzled with the same point, said Dacker, but it admits of a simple explanation. 
The case excited extraordinary interest at the time, and nothing could be more natural than that La Reynie, the head of the police, should retain this filler as a grim souvenir. It was not often that a marchioness of France underwent this extraordinary question. That he should engrave her initials upon it for the information of others was surely a very ordinary proceeding upon his part. And this, I asked, pointing to the marks upon the leathern neck. She was a cruel tigress, said Dacker as he turned away. I think it is evident that, like other tigresses, her teeth were bold, strong, and sharp. Ew. Ew. That's the end? That's it. Ew. Oh, ancient waterboarding. Yeah. Like, they, like, basically... They I mean, shoved, it, shoved a tunnel, uh, a funnel down her throat and then just poured water until in. Until her, like, she exploded, basically. Well, th- she that's... She drowned her. They, yeah. they, they kept filling her with water and that was the way they questioned her and then they wheeled her off to, to a town square and she was off, executed, but, but that was the torture, yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> it's kind of fucked up. Although, what I find, like, Wait, yes. she was already guilty. They did that just so she would, like, name accomplices because they yeah. couldn't believe that she could do it herself. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Um, And, and yes, horrifying and all That's that. very McCarthyism. But, but what I find, it's very McCarthyism. Yeah, it's like, tell but, us who helped you and we'll, we'll end it faster. Yeah. But what I find way more interesting about that, that particular story is how similar it is to Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes in structure. Oh, absolutely. It's like, the, I went to visit a friend, I, I went over to my friend's house, we talked about some weird shit that went on, an event happened, and then it was solved. Like, yeah. or like, at least explained. Um, yeah, and that, and that it's, similar. It's the very, it's the same dynamic, too, of like, you've got the narrator, who is clearly a very intelligent, well-read, um, worldly individual yeah. in his own right who is is sort of getting schooled by someone who's just a little bit quicker. Who's just a little quicker and a little bit more worldly or a little bit or different, like sees things differently. Yeah. Like Watson was a doctor. Yeah. And very smart and had been through war. But Sherlock just like had like there he was, was just some, he was he was, he connects on another level. Yeah. So same here. Like yeah. they met at a library. Like they they both are scholars and mm-hmm. clearly of the psychic like weird mm-hmm. and ew. So you know what creeps me out about that? <clears throat> when I'm learning lines mm-hmm. for anything, like I actually did it the other night, the a week a couple weeks ago, when I was learning the lines for the um, that one audition. Um, I sleep with my script under my pillow. Because the os- I believe in the osmosis of, like, something yeah. next to your head or something under... Like, I when I'm learning, like, long... Especially, like, big scripts, like Shakespeare and stuff, I will put my script under my pillow after a night of studying and then hope that overnight it, like, fills in my head. And it usually does. So that's really creepy. And now I want to go to a store and buy something creepy and put it by my bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate myself for that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Um... Uh, this week, I will um, scour eBay for some haunted dolls. I do not want a haunted doll in my house. That uh-huh. is one thing I will not deal with. <laughs> I am sorry. People, listeners, you can send me weird, kooky, creepy shit, but if there is a haunted doll in a box 
I will throw that puppet. <laughs> I don't want. Yeah, yeah. I still don't know where he is. Listen, it's, it's in my parents' garage. So if anything happens to my parents, it's I'm your just fault. Saying, but it's boxed up in my parents' garage. It would not fit in the car when we drove back to New York. I left it there. There is a hotted puppet. If you, what episode was that we recorded up in Minnesota? Because we talked about it. Yeah, I don't remember. The mystery package company, man. The mystery oh. package company but yeah, and that, that fucking was, puppet. That was, the clo- that was a haunted doll in my house. And I will tell you, that night, I had the most fucked up dreams. So this story hit a little close to home. I've, I've been goose pimpled the whole time. Like, I'm like, ew, ew. So if you have any uh, haunted stuff... <laughs> that you would like Heather to sleep next to, um, <laughs> shoot us an email at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or send us a message uh, through our website, campfireclassicspodcast.com. Let us know what the object is. We will send you a mailing address. Uh, you can ship it here. And uh, the following episode... We'll talk about we it. Will, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what Heather's dreams were as she slept next to your haunted object. If you do that, we'll send you some swag. We'll send you some stickers and, uh, like... And write you a song and, and send you thank yous yeah, and all that good you, stuff. If you go out of your way to send me some haunted shit to sleep next to, um, and if it's something you really don't want to, like, part with forever, we can send it back, too, if you send a return label or something. So, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. That was creepy. That was creepy in like a, a very different, very different way. sort of way. Yeah. I weirdly, I feel a lot less skeeved out by that one than by uh, the voice in the night well, because the voice in the night could happen. Was, well, the well, voice in the night was like that. sad. Well, it was sad. It was so like you you connected to the character, and it was like there was this sort of hopeless sadness about it. And this this one was more like and creepy a, and unsettling. It was also about a like disease that yeah. has isolated someone from the world and here we are in 2020 yeah. <laughs> um but yeah this one was more like unsettling like creepy like haunted objects yeah I mean, it was haunted objects i'm probably gonna have weird dreams tonight <laughs> <laughs> is that it um i think that's it i mean we uh we love you all and uh please continue to Listen and share with your friends, and please leave reviews if you're a listener. Um, wherever you listen to our podcast, um, reviews are huge. Like in getting more listeners, mm-hmm. like if we have good reviews, like it just tends to um, get circulated more. So if you if you want to leave us a five star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, we would love that, that. Would be much appreciated. And be sure to follow so every time we have a new episode, it drops into your. Um, your little mailbox every time so you don't miss one but we love you guys we uh we love doing this and uh we're excited to keep doing it we got a couple more spooky seasons and we have a special halloween episode that's going to drop on halloween yeah so that's it all right uh this has been fun um don't forget to spay and neuter your pets uh this has been campfire classics where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf